Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke from my son. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because he wanted to get in the oven. I know it doesn't appear to make sense, but uh, maybe for chickens it does. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from comic artist Jeffrey Brown's son's brain. Yeah. That'll help break the ice. Brown's book, Darth Vader and Son, is out now. We'll hear from him later. Also coming up, a chat with superstar conductor Gustavo Dudamel. Plus, we've got comedian Rob Corddry misbehaving while telling you how to behave. And Ben Schott, author of Schott's Miscellany, tells us what your waiter is saying about you behind your back. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Who is Mitt Romney going to pick as his running mate? The U.S. women's soccer team won the Olympic gold, beating Japan 2-1. to one. NASA engineers are still giddy after a successful landing on Mars. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Madeline Brand. She is the host of the Madeline Brand Show on KPCC in Los Angeles. Madeline, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about... Sleeping, because it's something that I love to do. It's probably my favorite activity. Do you talk in your sleep, Madeline? Yeah, I probably do. I'm sure I do, because I can't stop talking. Clearly, I'm on your show. I have my own show, and yet here I am on your show talking. Are you sleeping right now? (laughs) I certainly hope not. This is a weird dream you're having, isn't it, Madeline? It is. I'm going to wake up and tell you what I have learned by going on the internet. There was a study about sleeping and dreaming, and basically it says your dreams are affected by the position you sleep in. Oh. I know. So if you sleep on your stomach, according to this study, you are more apt to have intense dreams featuring persecution motifs, like being tied up or locked up or unable to move. Huh. That's interesting. And why why is that? Basically because your body is pinned down. Your arms are pinned down, right, if you're on your stomach. So that kind of seeps into your dream state. So if I wore goggles and a bathing suit, I would be swimming or something like that in my dreams? Is that? <laughs> Is that I don't want to know what you do at night. But don't you, I mean, it also could be a chicken and egg situation because don't you, when you feel more relaxed in general and less stressed out, you're probably more apt to be on your back mm. and with your arms out. You're not all, you know, trying to be constricted and comfort yourself. I tend to sleep on my side. So is there, does it say... Oh, you're one of those. Oh, no. That explains it. Maybe that's why... Maybe that's why all my dreams are about sleeping on my side. What is also interesting is if you sleep on your back prone, you are more likely to have, shall we say, erotic dreams. Oh. Good tip. (laughs) Madeline Brand, thank you for the small talk. You are welcome. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our sweet and sparkling history lesson with booze. First, the history part. 153 years ago this week, the first patent was issued for an invention that allowed people to do much less exercise. Just what we needed. Yeah. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. A device to help the disabled ended up mainly as a device to help shoppers. It was 1859, and a guy named Nathan Ames got a patent for a pretty great and humane concept. A set of mechanical stairs on a moving belt 
He figured it might help old or infirm people get upstairs in their homes. He called it the revolving stairway. Ames's idea didn't exactly catch on like wildfire, though. Maybe because, in his concept, the thing had to be cranked by hand. The revolving stairway never did get built. And it was 33 years before another guy, Jesse Reno, actually manufactured a similar device with a way less humanitarian function. It was basically a wide belt on an incline designed to carry crowds uphill. Reno had the first one installed at Coney Island Amusement Park to lift packs of fun seekers up onto a pier. And voila, the world's first escalator. Actually, Reno called it an inclined elevator. The term escalator was coined by a third guy, Charles Seeberger, who improved on Reno's machine by making it more like a moving stairwell with actual steps. Escalators popped up around the world, including the British department store Harrods, where at first the ride made shoppers so nervous, the store handed out shots of brandy at the top to calm them down. Today, of course, we're used to escalators. In fact, we might depend on them a little too much. One mall in Japan boasts the shortest escalator on earth. It carries customers a whopping 33 inches downstairs. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Katie Emerson of the Hawthorne Bar in Boston, not far from where Nathan Ames first came up with the idea for a rotating stairway. And Katie, what cocktail does that story inspire you to make? It uh, inspired me to make a drink that I'm calling the Iron Pier Swizzle. All right, because that was the pier at Coney Island where the first escalator was installed, correct? Yes, absolutely. All right, and how does this thing go? So I'm using a Bully Boy white rum, which is a Boston white rum. I thought that might be appropriate. Keeping it local? Yeah, and uh, we decided to use a swizzle style of drink. It's sort of a handmade way to make a blended drink. It's a Caribbean style. You know, when you're on the beach and you don't have electricity, You can use a uh, branch from one of their trees to swizzle up your drink and make it frosty and tasty and delicious. I got it. And this is because uh, in Ames' original design, he imagined the machine might be hand-cranked. Yep, exactly. It's a hand-hand way to do it. Okay. And Um, you're actually physically using a a swizzle stick. It's a branch from a tree. So am I going to need a branch for this? Uh, You know, they sell lots of swizzle sticks. Some people do it with bar spoons. We have the actual swizzle sticks. It's uh, a long stick, about a foot long. And it has five prongs on the end of it. All right. So you've got the rum and you've got your swizzle stick. What do you do? So we put in the glass the rum, uh, some grapefruit juice, cinnamon syrup, mm. and uh, a little bit of grenadine and some bitters. And then so as you, as you add the ice and swizzle the drink, it sort of the frost rises up on the outside of the glass. Like an escalator? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And is that it? And then, Well, then you, you top it off with ice, and then I floated a little bit of brandy on top. Of course, like the customers at Harrods got. Yeah. And then if you drink enough of these things, then you'll need an escalator to take you out of the bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, Brendan, a couple of things. Yeah. One, I'm still astonished by the idea that people were so blown away by an escalator ride they needed brandy. Maybe they faked it. 
just Maybe. to get the brandy. And two, I can't believe there was a time when <laughs> department stores would hand out free brandy. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine why they stopped. I'm no. sure insurance companies were totally cool <laughs> with moving floors and yeah, booze. No problem. <laughs> Uh, folks, we have video of the world's shortest escalator. You'll find that and all our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is comic artist and writer Jeffrey Brown. His best-selling book is called Darth Vader and Son. In it, he illustrates the tender side of Star Wars's ultimate villain. Here's Jeffrey to tell us about it and his list. P.S. Film fans, spoilers lie ahead. So I'm Jeffrey Brown. Darth Vader and son reinterprets Star Wars with Luke as a four-year-old frustrating his father in everyday father-son ways. You know, I'm, I'm a big science fiction fan, and it's not all terrifying aliens attacking some of my favorite moments are where you, you get to see these characters as very human and vulnerable. So here's a few of my favorite heartwarming moments from science fiction films. My first is from Terry Gilliam's Brazil. The main character, Sam Lowry, is stuck in this bureaucratic, nightmarish world. His air conditioning breaks and in comes, totally against regulations, Harry Tuttle, renegade air conditioning engineer, played by Robert De Niro. Harry Tuttle, heating engineer at your service. He breaks into Sam's apartment and fixes his air conditioning. Why I find this moment so endearing is you just see this character who has been living in this world totally blind to the humanity behind everything that's happening in He's just starting to realize that things can be done other ways. And then you just have Robert De Niro. He's not afraid of the government. It's just kind of reassuring, even though he's this terrorist by the government standards. Thanks. Listen, kid, we're all in this together. My second science fiction moment is from this TV show, Amazing Stories, that ran years ago. There's an episode directed by Steven Spielberg about World War II pilots. They're in a, this bomber, and they're in danger of crashing. Their landing gear has been shot up. 500 feet! 450! Lifting the nose! Wing flaps fully extended! Full flaps! One of the crew members is an aspiring cartoonist, and this cartoonist draws the wheel, and this cartoony wheel appears on the airplane, and they land safely. We got wheels! So, of course, being a cartoonist, that spoke to me. And, you know, it's just one of those moments that you kind of have this sense of wonder about the possibilities in life, particularly as a metaphor for art. Thank God it's a miracle. That's the word I was looking for. My third and final heartwarming science fiction moment is from the movie District 9. I think one of the reasons that this movie kind of had an emotional impact on me was that I saw it with my wife just after getting married. We were actually trying to see 500 Days of Summer, but by the time we got into the theater, the, all the good seats were taken, so <laughs> I was able to convince her to go see District 9. Yeah. District 9 is a film where 
aliens have arrived on Earth in South Africa, but they're stuck and they become kind of second-class citizens and put into these slums. There's a government agent who initially is one of the people kind of controlling them and he ends up getting infected and becoming an alien. Uh, at the end of the movie, he ends up saving an alien father and his son by catching a grenade in his battle armor. I don't know if there's something about catching a grenade for someone. For me, uh, we already had our son when we got married and something about that sacrifice to save a father-son relationship felt very powerful to me. We did finally see 500 Days of Summer and quite enjoyed it. It's, it's, a, it's a funny film. The guest list from writer and cartoonist Jeffrey Brown. His best-selling book is Darth Vader and Son. Enrico, you're kind of a sci-fi guy. Yeah. Favorite sentimental sci-fi moment? Oh. Actually, the tears in rain speech at the end of Blade Runner. Probably a lot of people's pick. What, do you have one? Always felt for the tauntaun in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> you know, sliced right open. An emotional moment. It was, really, it was like terms of endearment for me. <laughs> for the tauntaun, too. <laughs> Folks coming up. Classical music superstar Gustavo Dudamel will be here to share his diverse tastes. Salsa, merengue, rock, Aerosmith, I like. Fugue looks like a lady. Wow. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comic Rob Cordry answers our listeners' etiquette questions with sensitivity and compassion. Debbie is not the kind of person that pledges to public radio. She's a crazed harpy. Aw. That's nice. And in a few minutes, author John Brandon reads from his new book, A Million Heavens. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's classical conductor Gustavo Dudamel. At the ripe old age of 31, he is considered one of the greatest classical music conductors in the world. He is currently the musical director of the Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra in Sweden, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra in Venezuela, and of course the Los Angeles Philharmonic, with whom he won a Grammy this year for Best Orchestral Performance. Here's a clip. It's Brahms' Symphony No. 4. This week, Gustavo Dudamel will be conducting as part of a festival he has curated at the Hollywood Bowl. It's called America and the Americas. A few days back, we met up to talk about that and his musical life. And Gustavo, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a big honor, and I'm very happy to be talking to you. Wow, not as happy and honored as, as I. Let's start talking a little bit about your development as a musician. You were the product of the Venezuelan public music education system known as El Sistema. Thousands and thousands of kids have gone through this and turned out amazing musicians. What? Tell me a little bit about your first day. Do you remember your first day and what happened? I was around, yes, 40 years old. I, re I remember my first day. This was in a very colonial house, blue. I remember exactly the color of the house. You know, going there to this classroom, meeting my friends, still some of them play in the Simon Bolivar Orchestra. And in my first day, they were checking our voice, how we can follow a sound. Your, your singing voice? Exactly. They were playing in the piano, 
and we were like, eh, oh, uh, I have been a terrible singer. <laughs> Opera was ruled out immediately. Yes, it was horrible, <laughs> but was in tune. Then uh, they were showing us musical symbols, you know, the notes. We started immediately to practice solfege, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. And that was the day. And I went back to my house very happy. I was thinking that I knew it, you know, a new language. It was really, really beautiful. You started as a trombonist after your father, correct? It was my dream. It was my dream, but I, my arm was too small. To slide the trombone, your arm was too short? Exactly. And then I tried the trumpet and I finished playing violin. <laughs> You know, yeah. I jumped from the brass section to the string section in one moment. So you started off playing music. Clearly you love playing. Why, why become a conductor? You know, was, you know, going to the concerts and listening and watching, you know, that guy, you know, moving the arms. I asked my grandmother, please, can I have as a present a baton? You know, became my favorite game because I had my LPs. Your albums? It's albums, you know, but LPs, you know, it's still not CD. Yeah. Vinyl yeah. records. Vinyl records. And rehearsing, stopping, you know, indications to the musicians. You, you would sort of conduct your records? Exactly. I was doing concerts for my family. It was like very natural to become conductor. Let me ask you, actually, your conducting style is just sort of notoriously physical. You're incredibly fun to watch. How much of that is developed because you want to entertain the audience and how much of it is because you're just moved by the music if it's if it's to entertain then it's not music you are not honest every movement that the conductor do is part of the music of course every conductor have a different way to conduct but for me you know i do now less movements that i was doing before really you used to be wilder yeah because i was you know 12 years old <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's talk a little bit about America and the Americas. This is a, a program that combines music from America and also South and Central America, sometimes in the same program. You're opening the festival with you and the orchestra playing with the Dominican songwriter, Juan Luis Guerra. Exactly. Why did you want to start the festival with him? Well, because he sings bachata and merengue. That is not classical music. But it's beautiful to see the union and that the classical music is not, you know, separate. And to see that music is one, it's beautiful to see and to show that music can be one. You know, I always said, there's only two kinds of music. The bad music and the good music. That's it. But classical, everything, everything was born from the typical music that was classic. You know, people dancing minuetos, different kind of dances, regular, the normal people. That became all this modern music. Uh, salsa, merengue, rock, all of that. It's very clear from this program that classical is not the only thing you're interested in. Give me a musician that you think people would be surprised that you are really into. Oof, my God. Aerosmith, <laughs> I like. Aerosmith, really? Absolutely, you know. I love, well, some songs of Bijons I like, you know. Of, of who, sir? Bijons. 
Beyonce. Beyonce, ah, es that one. For example, eh, Beatles, eh, Queen, I love Queens. Uh, Queen is kind of like classical music sometimes. Well, They've got multiple movements in their songs. It's beautiful because it shows, you know, rock is connected. All right. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show, one of which you may have already answered, actually, by telling me that, <laughs> that you're into Aerosmith, which I love. First of all, what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, would you least like to be asked? Which hair product do you use? <laughs> what which, hair which product always, do you use? Always, always people ask me that. You do have the best hair in classical music, I will say. <laughs> well, it's very cheap. I go to the hair dresser, you know, every five months. So I don't have the problem to go every month. It's longish, is exactly. what you're saying. Exactly. Anyway, I won't ask you about it, but I do congratulate you on your hair. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. The second question is, tell us something we don't know about anything. It can be about yourself, or it can just be a piece of trivia. Well, Mama, maybe people know that that I practice a lot of sports. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Karate, for example. I went to competitions and everything. And people, maybe that is why I move a lot, <laughs> conducting. <laughs> Seriously, do you think you could chop a brick in half with a baton? <laughs> maybe. Gustavo Dudamel's America and the Americas Festival is at the Hollywood Bowl this week. Among his guests will be a guy named Placido Domingo, you might have heard tell about. Mm, no Aerosmith, though, huh? Not, not <laughs> this time around. You know, Alas. It, it kind of makes sense that the Gustavo would like Aerosmith, right? Because yep. he's a rock star of the classical world, so he would like other rock stars. Actually, I was thinking about that term, rock star of the classical world. Yeah. Classical music was popular first. So shouldn't we call Aerosmith classical stars of the rock world? Think about that. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a mistake to associate the word class <laughs> with Aerosmith at all. <laughs> and I say that out of love. And now, time to eavesdrop. John Brandon's novel Citrus County was one of the most acclaimed books of 2010. He just released a new one called A Million Heavens. Today we overhear him reading a dinner party worthy excerpt. My name is John Brandon. My book follows a whole bunch of folks around the desert of New Mexico. And one of the characters is a wolf. He's been having problems with his instincts. Uh, he's been losing them and they're being replaced by intelligence, which is bad for him. He's also been confused about why he is attracted to human music. These things are starting to come to a head a little bit. It was daytime, but the moon was out, a tarnished coin in the ozone. The wolf had given up his rounds. His territory was all he had, and he'd been patrolling it since before he could remember, and he'd forsaken it and wanted nothing more to do with Albuquerque. He haunted the basin now, a lost land that would offer a lost animal no aid, a land where the dunes shifted overnight and scorpions feared their own stinging tails. The wolf frequented Old Rattlesnake Park, an area that didn't seem owned by any particular human, a place marked off with no trespassing signs that had been posted by trespassers. Closer to Loft, there was a copse of doomed pine trees on a defunct golf course, and the wolf used the branchless woods as cover. The days were not bright and the nights were not dark. 
The wolf was subsisting on nothing but butterflies, snapped from the wind and swallowed in fluttery gulps. There was no reason for the wolf to do rounds. No animal could encroach upon the wolf, and if the humans encroached, which they had and would and did, it was temporary. Their empires fell, their great cities burned and blew away like cigarette ash. Everyone who lived in Loft lived on the edge of Loft. One house had a backyard full of chickens, and the wolf found himself gazing down at the penned birds from his perch on a hard hill that seemed high in the daytime, but at night seemed so far from the stars. The chickens were kept in a fence meant to thwart coyotes. The wolf should have slipped down and plucked a few, but he didn't want them to be gone. The chickens were unwittingly keeping him company, and in a way, he was guarding them. The wolf gave up his promontory and eased down the hill toward the house so he could hear the chickens, and so he could frighten them a little, put them on edge for their own good. The wolf saw a window with no blinds toward the front of the house, and he saw the form of the girl inside. He stayed put, and after a short time the wind died out altogether, and the wolf heard the strumming. It was a guitar. It stopped, and the wolf stood still until it started again. The wolf heard the girl trying out her voice, reedy and full of an emotion the wolf couldn't grasp. Where I've been lately is no concern of yours. There was never a way to tell, once music began, how long it would last. He was panting, and his breath was out of rhythm with the song. Shy and tired -eyed, am I? The wolf got right under the window, pinned between the stucco and a line of tough shrubs. Now he felt this girl's song pressing on him pleasantly from without and within. The girl convinced her voice to rise with purpose, and the strumming rose with it. The wolf felt quick and dumb. This music could have been anywhere, and he could have been anywhere, but they were both here. The song was going to end, but that didn't matter because whenever it ended would be too soon. If it ended in a human minute, that would be too soon. And if it ended when morning broke, that would be too soon. Author John Brandon, reading from his novel A Million Heavens. This music is from Laura Marling, and you're listening, maybe through a window, to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't. So if the topic comes up in conversation later, we can hold our own. This week, the topic is design, and our teacher is Debbie Millman. She is host of the design radio show called Design Matters. She is president emeritus of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and she is the president of design for the brand consultant Sterling Brands. Debbie, welcome back. Hello, it's great to be back. We had you here at the beginning of the year, kind of predicting some trends for 2012. Get us up to date. What is happening these days in the world of design? Well, we just got an update on the color palette for the fall. You might remember in our last visit together, I talked about the color of the year from Pantone, Tangerine Tango, oh. a very bright reddish orange. That's right. It dictated my bathing suit choice. <laughs> Mine too, <laughs> as well as my undergarments. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Goodness, Debbie. 
Okay, so well, what, what are you, case, what's complementing that color now? There are nine additional colors that complement Tangerine Tango. Um, the most interesting are Pink Flambe, which is sort of a sister to <laughs> Tangerine Tango, and it's exactly what it sounds like, a bit of a fluorescent hot pink. Yeah, it's like Tango's airheaded sister. Exactly. There is Rhapsody. Guess what color Rhapsody is? Well, I, I think immediately of Rhapsody in blue. Close, close. It's a purpley lavender color with oh. a little bit of blue in there. All right. And then, not content with marine green, we have ultra marine green. So what dictates what colors go with what season? I mean, are there practical reasons for when certain colors work, or is this all just kind of marketing? Oh, that's such an interesting question. There used to be much harsher rules than there are now. For example, you weren't really allowed, so to speak, to wear white until after Memorial Day. But what's really more, I guess, sinister, if you want to <laughs> take the conversation in that direction, is the notion of these all being constructs that we've created as a culture. And what they really are allowing us to do is feel okay about buying more things yep. because we need things in the color of the season. Um, and so in, in the world of branding, which is a sister discipline to design, that's called planned obsolescence. You work at a brand consultancy. Do you guys talk about that stuff? We talk about it, but I try whenever <laughs> possible not to do it. There is something about the knowledge helping you pre prevent having to buy yeah. into those constructs. All right, so that's the color update. What else is happening in, in design this year that you've noticed? Well, it's a trend that I'm calling making something from something. Okay. So Method's new soap bottle is made from plastic that they're collecting from the Pacific garbage patch oh, wow. trash heap. The garbage patch is that large mass of plastic debris. That Method helped make, maybe. Yeah, they level. did, actually. <laughs> Method's a soap company, for those who don't know. It's really more than a patch. It's bigger than the state of Texas. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and um, it's impossible now to be able to dismantle this debris. So Method has been trolling the beaches at the James Campbell Wildlife Refuge in Oahu for plastic garbage to turn into bottles. This sounds like a sound idea. It's good for the planet and good for the bottom line, I'm guessing, because you don't have to pay for trash. <laughs> you don't have to pay for trash, but it'll be interesting to see if consumers have any issues getting over the notion that the soap they're using is coming from oh, dirty water. Debbie, <laughs> I wasn't I even thinking about that. I know, I, think, I know. Why did you have but, to? Because I'm a brand consultant. I have to think about these things. <laughs> okay, so we've covered fall colors, product design. Quickly, uh, what, if anything, is new in the technological realm? The most exciting thing that I've seen in technology is something that, of course, MIT is developing. Small magnetic cubes that can communicate with each other to assume any shape in what they're calling a sandbox. So it's sort of like smart sand. How big are these cubes? Are they like the size of sand grains? No, they're they're quite a bit bigger. They're about one inch cubes. Okay, and they're self sculpting, reconfigurable <laughs> robotic cubes that send messages to each other to create real three dimensional objects. So why are they doing this? What do they want to do with these cubes? 
Well, it's sort of similar to three-dimensional printing technology. Okay, yeah. And this is particularly good for rapid prototyping or even replicating broken objects like a car part, for example. Or they could put this cube sandbox on the road and it could travel around like a circus and people would pay $5 to watch it form and reform shapes. Yeah, that's what that's what MIT is hoping. <laughs> We're going to charge five bucks a pop to watch this stuff happen. So Rico, it occurs to me, maybe we can make the Pacific Garbage Patch go away if we just declare it as, you know, so last year, <laughs> kind of out of style. That would be great if we could just plan its obsolescence. Exactly. Or just it. shame it, you know. We could do that right. to lots of world problems, like poverty. Mm-hmm. You still poverty? It's embarrassing. <laughs> Justice is the new black, guys. Completely. Folks, coming up, we feature lots of things that are currently in fashion, including rock band King Tough, writer and collector of linguistic trifles Ben Schott, and comic actor Rob Corddry gives us advice like this. Just don't actually smack people. Smacking so 2010. It's true. All that when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, writer Ben Schott will tell us what waiters are saying about us behind our backs. And also coming up, pop rocker King Tough suggests a dinner party soundtrack. But first, suggestions of a different sort. It is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and we invite a person of note to answer them. And this week, we're happy to welcome writer and actor Rob Corddry. He was a former correspondent for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and he's the creator and star of Children's Hospital, which starts its new season next week on Adult Swim. Rob, for those who haven't had the pleasure, can you tell them about Children's Hospital, this twisted world you've created? I've stopped being able to really describe it efficiently because it's definitely changed over the years. It used to be a medical parody, medical show parody, and now it's just sort of, um, it's its own thing, I guess. It's a parody, it's TV in a lot of ways, and but it's, it's twisted. I mean, you, you're Dr. Blake Downs. You wear a clown suit. It is. It's it's very absurd. <laughs> it's it's absurd comedy. I'm I play a clown, but I'm the least funny person in the hospital. Mm. There's not a lot by way of continuity or that sort of. Yeah. Everybody's hung up on that. Yeah. <laughs> what a great idea to have a show that you don't actually have to make any sense or plot. Yeah, I like it. Right? Just do stuff. Yeah. Someday I'm going to be in a writer's room. I'm going to be like, well, I have no idea how to keep a story going. What's up? Look, you're the attending physician, so I need your permission. I want to cut this kid open. Why? She's got a broken arm. Says who? The x-ray. Please. I don't trust these. They're not even color. Have you been to the hospital since you created this show? And <laughs> Yes. And people, how do they treat you? How do they, they respond? Uh, well, the woman, one woman, she walked me to the elevator, and she's like, by the way, we're all... We're all fans of the show. This was at Children's <laughs> Hospital in Los Angeles. She's got to whisper it. Yeah, like, yeah, we don't want anybody to know this. <laughs> but she's like, th- thought, and I forget exactly what she said, but some sort of hint that she thought maybe I had a mole in there or something that was getting all the stories. Whoa. <laughs> it, you're, it, it turns out you're actually representing reality is what she's uh, well, you know, implying? Yeah. I love that, but I was like, I'm going to get out of here and go to Cedar sinai now because... <laughs> you did not want to stay in a hospital where what happens on your... Show <laughs> that's right could really happen. Well, you need to heal our listeners. They have etiquette questions. Oh, I have nothing but answers. Okay, we have a question from Jack in Columbus, Ohio. He says, "My doctor chats a lot. It's entertaining at the time, but then, especially when I'm healthy, I'm like, wait, I just spent three hundred bucks on a funny conversation. Should I mention it 
or just deal? Jack, uh, he's resenting his doctor when he's healthy. Yeah, well, well that's so true. no concept of preventative medicine whatsoever. <laughs> I don't trust Jack, and I think he shouldn't talk to people. Oh, All right, there we go. All so, right. Jack, you should have your larynx removed. <laughs> There's your advice, quote unquote. That is my form of etiquette. <laughs> yes, I could break you down. Well, let's try this out on Debbie via Facebook. Oh, great, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> Alienate your audience right away. That's what I do. <laughs> she writes, why don't people like to RSVP and how do you make them respond? The requested RSVP deadline for my wedding is fast approaching, but I've received barely a fifth of the response cards back. Trying not to sound like a crazed harpy. When anybody says, trying not to sound like a crazed harpy, <laughs> it means they are, they are a crazed harpy. Debbie, she's our listener. This, this is Debbie, somebody well, she listen. may pledge to the public radio station she hears us on. Yeah. Debbie is not the kind of person that pledges to public radio. Oh. She's a crazed harpy. Okay. She, uh, here's the problem, is that she's her, the premise is wrong. Everybody RSVPs to weddings. Mm. I've never heard of this before. So Debbie has a problem with her friends. Uh, because they think she's a crazed heart. Oh. <laughs> I see. She's crazy. She's... And, and I promise there might be an actual etiquette answer I have at some point. This is mostly just breaking down yeah. your listeners. All right. Well, let's. Uh, Josh in New Orleans has a question for okay. you. For a workplace fantasy sports league, what is the appropriate level of smack talk to keep people engaged but not disrupt office civility? That is a really good question. Now, I'm my workplace is, I guess I have little concept of what what a what a workplace you dress as an evil clown at your workplace <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh we were talking about the most uh, the most horrible thing the other day at work and mm. you know there is an account a 65 year old woman accountant who i think this is her first time working on a comedy show and it took me 10 minutes to realize that these are horrible things we were saying <laughs> and laughing at them. But if you had to guess at proper office I think smack talk etiquette, what do you tell Joe? I'd say just don't actually smack people. <laughs> but I mean, with sports, you can yeah. pretty much get away with anything. So your right to smack talk ends where my nose begins. Yeah. And just don't say, uh, there's like three or four words you probably shouldn't say in a workplace. <laughs> yeah. Unionize. That's one of them. <laughs> don't do that when you're talking uh, personal smack. day. There you go, Josh. Kimberly via Facebook writes, how do you acknowledge a famous person when you don't want to be a pain about it? This is a, You're the right person to ask this. Yeah, I'm hugely famous. I've always just made eye contact, says Kimberly, held it for a second, and then moved on. Is that cool? It's kind of weird. I mean, if, that's, if you're trying... I hate it when people come up and say... I have a very comfortable level of celebrity. I I could walk down the street and have dinner, but I, right. I it makes me feel bad when people come up to me and say, "Oh my, I don't want to be a jerk. I, I like your show." How in what world is that jerky? Mm, I appreciate it, but that's, that's nice. Cool. They kind of want you to know that they have some concept that there's a, a yeah something's being breached. I guess I guess I feel so. I start yeah. off the conversation feeling bad hmm. about it for them, and then I try and I spend so much time with them trying to make them feel more comfortable. That then you feel bad for your family. I feel bad this. for me <laughs> and my family. So stock, yeah. stock the famous stock person. Away. Don't look at them. Yeah, it becomes it stops being stalking and just becomes greeting. Okay, okay, good. Right. So we have. A, Question from Jeff and Debbie. Oh, no. That's Harpy. <laughs> Different Debbie. Do you guys want me here during your pledge drives? I think I'd be great. I sure do. You'd be like, you know what? Forget it. Keep your money. <laughs> we don't want it. Who needs it from the yeah. likes of you? Jeff and Debbie of Ocala, Florida have a question. They ask, is it o <laughs> this is a great question. Hmm. Is it okay to bring your guitar with you to a dinner party without asking? I'll judge from the snort that that's a no. No. Keep your guitar in your bedroom. 
to a dinner party? What? You, it's like, should I? Can yeah. I bring a hacky sack? It's the same thing. Can I go barefoot? Bring the guitar if you want Rob to hate the party. I don't want to go. Okay, Rob's not going. No one is going to watch my show. They're going to listen to this and say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that clown. <laughs> they're going to be. I don't think so. I think they're going to be fascinated to see what kind of man could be so cruel. Until then, Rob Cordry, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Did I? Rob Cordry, a new season of his show, Children's Hospital, began this week on Adult Swim. And folks, we promise the next person we invite to answer your etiquette questions will be perhaps more sensitive to needs. Mm. Send your queries via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, have you ever had to pop the clutch in order to drop dirty so as not to anger an eagle inner? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not since I stopped driving big rigs. <laughs> an eagle inner is slang for a highway patrol helicopter, right? Uh, no, this is restaurant slang. Oh. Yes. That's surprising. A, a lot of which was compiled this week in a New York Times article written by Ben Schott. Okay. And basically, the article is a glossary of lots of secret codes used by staff in some top New York restaurants. Interesting. So, I decided to talk to him about it. And I started by asking him to tell me his favorite slang discovery. I like a lot of them. I like the mix. I like how some involve front of house and some involve backstage in the kitchen. I suspect my favorite is from a New York institution called Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came up with a couple of classics, some relatively obvious. Oy vey, a troublemaker's uh, shiksas as a table of non-Jewish women. But my favorite, I think, is Mr. Schwartz and his niece. Okay, and that means? An old Jewish man with his girlfriend. <laughs> there is a lot of slang that you discovered that pokes fun of customers. Well, I think that's the key of all slang, all backstage slang, whether you're a policeman or a doctor or you work in the legal service. The slang is about private communication, not necessarily secret, but private, as in you're talking to people who are with you and sort of, you know, who have the same travails as you do. So a lot of slang will be for difficult customers or for customers who want something special or for ones that, you know, make you raise your eyebrows. And obviously you want to be able to do that without necessarily insulting them to their face. I'm sure there were a lot of things you couldn't print at all in the New York Times. Well, we managed to get one or two snuck in. There was only a couple, and obviously I think they knew for the New York Times they weren't going to share some of the more outrageous things. Gwinnett Street, which is a very nice restaurant in Brooklyn, they said, we are all metalheads, so Sabbath, as in Black Sabbath, is a VIP. Um, <laughs> Sepultura is a not-so-nice person, and they shout killer every time they're walking past with a hot pan or coming around a corner. I was kind of astounded about how much special treatment is going on in restaurants. I mean, there are so many phrases for, you know, complimentary glasses of wine or how to treat VIPs. Did that, were you surprised at that? Or are you always treated specially when you go to restaurants? I'm, I'm always treated specially. Um, <laughs> actually, well, it's the hospitality industry. And so you want to be hospitable. And there are people who come year after year and they, they become friends and you want to treat them well. Del Posto, for example, um, has um, a, a phrase in their reservation system which is always, and it means always gets a mm. table. And why? It's someone who's been there more than 60 times. So there are also some standard phrases. So PX, for example, um, explain, can you tell us what that means? Well, there's a regular system between PX, PPX, and PPPX, and that's a level of VIP. And it's thought that they're widely used in the restaurants, like 86 is widely used to mean we're out of something. But the PX system, yeah. um, it's thought to come from the French abbreviation of, excuse my um, pronunciation, person particulièrement extraordinaire. Um, and it's depending on how particular and how extraordinary you are. 
Of course, I was drawn to Diner, the restaurant in Brooklyn, has a phrase called NPR. Ah, well, of course, you see. Um, <laughs> nice people get rewards, which is actually also true if you happen to listen to NPR. Um, but they introduced <laughs> that, talking to them, is interesting because they wanted to make even new customers feel like VIPs. And nice people get rewards is a sense of if you go and you're engaged and you get the Diner ethos and you're a friendly, good customer, then you too will get a free, you know, whatever it is, some, yeah. some um, ice cream sent out because it's not just the regulars. All right. So those words are a window into VIP culture and how the waitstaff describes customers. Another thing this list does is give us a peek into the kitchen and kind of give us insight into how our food is prepared. Can you share with us some of the terms you discovered relating to that? Absolutely. So as you say, there's sort of two halves. The first half of this is really about the reservation system. So it's, you know, we've got a customer in, let's tell me something about him. So there's a wonderful phrase, Samanzano, which is Italian for killing themselves, which Le Cirque uses if they know a diner is about to propose that evening. And the other (laughs) half of this is the backstage slang. So it's the slang used in the kitchen or used between the service. So there are some great phrases. The Dutch, for example, um, has full blast wegala, which means plate the table, let's go, let's get it moving. Um, And they say long time. So if someone's being particularly slow, rather than the expletives that you might say, you shout long time, as in you're making me wait a long time. What's interesting about seeing all these terms in one place is that you get a real sense of people's behavior in restaurants, like there's certain patterns that show up. Absolutely. For example, the phrase bathroom dance, which refers to that time after the check is paid, where one diner at a time leaves to use the restroom. And when I read that, I was like, wow, I absolutely do that. Um, we, we all do. Um, vestibule paralysis is what my friend calls it, when no one can quite leave. Everyone sort of mills around. So, Ben, what kind of diner are you? Are you kind of a VIP? Are you someone who lingers too long? Do you send a book with your order, which means, you know, you have lots of special requests? I'm, I'm, well, I'm British, so we're terrified of making any special request. It's the idea of asking for sauce <laughs> on the side. I mean, it would never occur to us. Um, I would sit there dumbfounded when people sort of, you know, interrogate the server as to exactly where the heirloom tomatoes came from. I just order the tomatoes and try not to, you know, cause too much of a fuss. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a good diner. I'm polite. Um, I tip well. Um, I leave early, um, I arrive on time. I try to behave. So you're a PPPPX, maybe? The thing is, the more you're a triple PX, the more likely you are to get HSFN, which is heavy something for nothing. And who doesn't like a bit of HSFN? Enrico Ben also shared some terms that he was told anonymously. Mm. So these are ones restaurants didn't want to be associated with. Okay. So they include cupcaking, which is when a server only pays attention to attractive guests. Oh, I get that all the time. Yeah, you're cupcake. I'm familiar with it. And fire table 100, which warns the staff that a health inspector's on the premises. Uh. Of course, there is no table 100. Why don't they just shout fire? Because then everybody would just run, including the inspector. I think the term for that is illegal. <laughs> So we've had our main course, learned some manners, kind of. Yeah. We need one more ingredient for the perfect dinner party, music. Yes, Kyle Thomas, a.k.a. King Tough, is on tour now, supporting his latest album of Sweet Garage Rock. Here he is with a few musical suggestions. Hey, this is King Tough, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song is... Caroline by the Go. I was a boy with rosebud eyes, leapt through the limitless starless skies. 
The producer I worked with, Bobby Harlow, it's his band, and I really got to know his music before I worked with him. The song was the first one I fell in love with. Kind of a very tender song, and it's got really interesting chord changes. I guess I would put this first at the dinner party just because it's kind of a nice song. Got a chill vibe. You're rocking all the time. You just want to chill sometimes with some food. You can't stop eating. Then you're just like lying there. You can't move. You just want to hear some mellow songs. My second song would be, it's called The Unicorn by Peter Grudzian. The spring is in the streets again and too many seasons gone by. He was sort of underground folk singer in the 70s, gay. Just made all his recordings at home, played all the instruments. You can hear that he's just like kind of an outcast in his singing and it's got some nice imperfections in the song which is my favorite thing about music. Change all that's gone for the new. It sounds like it came from outer space kind of. It's strange. I mean if I was having a dinner party most likely the people that would be there would be of a similar breed. That would understand this song. Angels descend from the sky. And uh, my last song is by Gap Dream. He's an artist on Burger Records. And the song is called My Other Man. I just got super obsessed with this album and just listen to it like every day. It's got a really nice slow motion quality to it that's kind of entrancing. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And it's just, you know, another guy playing everything himself, recording everything himself. And that's where I come from too, is like my first album. I played it all myself. And it's just about getting into your own little world. So I, I really connect with records that are like that. And also, yeah, I feel like that's kind of the theme throughout each one of these songs is that each person was just kind of lost in their own little world. If I were to choose one of my own songs to play at the dinner party, I would choose Swamp of Love just because it has the same vibe as these songs. That song came out, I was living up at this sort of like cabin type house, spending a lot of time by myself and I was writing songs on this beat up old piano and this song sort of came out just in the middle of the night. And it's one of my favorites on my new record. A dinner party soundtrack from Kyle Thomas, AKA King Tough. He's on tour now in support of his self-titled album, and that's The Dinner Party for this week, folks. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our intrepid interns. Yes. Thanks also to Bill Lance, Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show, Marketplace. And we welcome my hometown station, WESA in Pittsburgh. Bon appetit. <laughs>